Khuni, The Crimes of India is a thoroughly researched podcast that uses publicly available documents, reports and books and associated media to provide listeners with a complete picture of the week's case. The following content is often graphic and regularly uncomfortable. Mentions of assault, bodily harm and death may follow. Khuni, The Crimes of India does not condone any actions mentioned in the episode. Minors are advised to exercise caution before proceeding. Thank you. Namaste, namaskaram. Welcome back to another shorty. We hope you enjoyed our episode on Charles Sobraj and are excited for the next installment. And in the meantime, hi, I'm Aditi and today I'm going to tell you the story of two murders that outraged polite society in the early 1900s in colonial India. This is the story of the Agra double murders. So I first heard about this case because I grew up reading a lot of Ruskin Bond and he references this incident in many of his stories. Uh, I think the most obvious and famous one is definitely he said it with arsenic, which is an absolute delight and everyone should read it. But even in other semi-autobiographical stories as well, he alludes to some uncle or aunt who was arrested for murdering people with arsenic. So Bond is definitely not connected to the case. The uncles and aunts are fictitious. But it shows how famous or infamous the incident was and just how much it captured popular imagination. If you want to read about the case in detail, you, like me, can refer to The Agra Double Murder, A Crime of Passion from the Raj by Cecil Walsh. Walsh was a high court judge in India during this time. And the foreword to this book is written by Ruskin Bond. So, let's get into the case. On a cold November morning in 1912, the otherwise sleepy and disinterested town of Agra was gasping for breath. Because, overnight, a ghastly murder had taken place in the city. A Mrs. Louisa Clark had been asleep in her home the previous night. Her daughter Maud had been in the same house as her. Uh, A few men had barged into the house, killed Mrs. Clark and fled into the night. Now at first the police thought it was robbery, but they quickly ruled it out for a number of reasons. Firstly, the victim was an Anglo-Indian lady whose husband, Dr. Henry Clark, worked at the local hospital in Agra. And it was rare for a woman of her race and class to be targeted by natives especially for robbery. Secondly, she had been murdered in the most brutal manner. Her attackers had used a sword to inflict two fatal blows on her head, cracking her skull open. But they had not touched Maud at all, even though she could have been easily overpowered by them had they wanted. Thirdly, they had a dog that had not barked during the entire ordeal, which was completely out of character for it. And finally, and this is the most strange part for a robbery, no valuables had been stolen from the house. 
The men simply fled after the murder. So you don't have to be a Byomkesh Bakshi type to realize that this wasn't a robbery gone wrong. And it was apparent to the police as well, who already had a fair idea of the person who could have had a hand in this gruesome crime. And that man was Dr. Henry Clark, Louisa's husband. So Henry was arrested the very same morning. And you might be thinking, well, what is the big deal? It's always the spouse, right? But once the police started looking into Clark, far too many skeletons started tumbling out. And to examine each of these skeletons, we need to go a little further back to 1909, when the Clarks were settled in a small town called Meerut. So the Clarks were a respectable Anglo-Indian family. Henry Clark was a doctor with the Indian Subordinate Medical Service, which mainly comprised of Anglo-Indians and domiciled Englishmen. Remember, these are colonial times. India is under British Raj. Louisa, his wife, was a nurse and was about six years his senior. Louisa was a gentle, quiet, good-natured woman, completely devoted to her three children and husband. Henry, on the other hand, was a man of mediocre abilities. In fact, when they were still courting, Henry had failed his examinations and Louisa had to wait a few years so Henry could get employed and certified before they got married. Even at his job, Henry was unexceptional. Also, he had a shit personality. I'm not kidding you guys, not exaggerating. He had the worst personality. He was a consummate gambler and womanizer. He had been described as, I quote, Course, both in conduct and in language. But nevertheless, he seemed to do very well with the ladies, their marital status notwithstanding. And Louisa had to learn to look the other way for the sake of her marriage and children. And as if this all wasn't enough, Henry was also extremely abusive towards his family. Here is a letter his daughter Maud wrote to him in response to an extremely humiliating letter he had written to his wife. Quote, Hardly a day passes when you don't row and abuse. If you knew that mother wouldn't look after you, you shouldn't have married her. You proposed to her twice, and then she accepted of you on the condition that you passed your exam. If she only knew that you were going to treat her like a dog in after years, she would have married someone better than you. End quote. During the trial, the children testified about how he used to strike their mother as well. So there was physical violence involved. He would call her, and I quote, a damn swine. And with each passing year, his affairs became more and more brazen and open to the public, much to their mother's embarrassment. So in the middle of 1909, they became friendly with another family called the Fulhams, who were Indian domiciled Englishmen. Edward Fulham was an officer with the Military Accounts Department, who was a respectable British officer, very religious. He had been a Sunday school teacher. He was a serious man and very much a polar opposite of his wife, Augusta. Augusta was about eight years her husband's junior and was much more sparkly. She was well-educated, trained in music. She also had been a Sunday school teacher and that may be the only thing she had in common with her husband. She was a doting mother of three kids. Her married life was significantly better than the Clark's. 
by all accounts, Edward was a good husband and a father. Now, Augusta may or may not have been in love with her hubby, as she liked to call him, but she definitely respected him. All said and done, Augusta and Edward seemed to have a normal life. But Augusta was not satisfied with her normal life. As the Clarks and Fulhams got acquainted in the summer of 1909, a secret affair blossomed between Augusta and Henry, sending the local rumour mills into overdrive. Their community and Meerut were too small to handle this adulterous and scandalous affair. It's hard to tell what drew the cheery, happy-go-lucky Augusta to a prickly man like Henry. If Augusta had little in common with her husband, she had absolutely nothing in common with Henry. Maybe she was bored, maybe the small town life was too dreary and she needed some excitement, who can tell. But she did end up falling in love with Henry, and desperately so. Now, Augusta had been pregnant in 1909. Henry had attended to Augusta during this time, and Edward genuinely believed that he owed the lives of his wife and newborn daughter to this absolute garbage man who had been romancing his wife right under his nose. In 1910, Henry Clark was transferred to Delhi. Augusta was distraught, obviously. But distance, as the cliché goes, only made the heart grow fonder. Many a passionate and effusive letters were exchanged between Meerut and Delhi. The first one was written on 30th November 1910. This is how she begins it. Dear heart of mine, I greet you with loving thoughts and true. And I pray that every happiness may be vouchsafed to you. Like I said, effusive. In this letter, she is excited about Henry's impending visit to Meerut. So we know that Henry regularly visits her from Delhi, almost monthly. And once again, remember, this is 1910. Trains exist, but it's still 40 miles between Delhi and Meerut. Oh, also, this is how she ends it. Quote, Fondest and truest love and kisses, darling. Warmest love and the sweetest of kisses from your own little loving and ever-devoted little sweetheart and bacha. Gussie. Yeah. They called each other bacha, which means baby in Hindi. And Henry called her Gussie, which sounds less like a nickname and more like a brand of pantyhose. I barely kept down the barfs, people. Just barely. Because these are some of the most cringe-inducing letters I have ever had to read. And there are a lot of letters. Augusta wrote almost every day, except Saturday and Sunday because that's when her husband would be at home. So, it is safe to say that these two were deeply infatuated with each other. There were many mishaps along the way. It was not smooth sailing for the two lovers. Henry used to travel so much between Delhi and Meerut that he was neglecting his work. And so as punishment, he was transferred to Agra. Before he left for Agra, he went to Meerut to meet with Augusta. And here, a major blunder happened. Edward saw them together. In fact, he saw them in the worst possible way. Augusta was standing in her nightgown at the door of her bedroom, bidding goodbye to Henry at 5 a.m. in the morning. So obviously, this could not have looked worse. In fact, she mentions in her later letters to Henry how jealous her husband had been. 
And in some of these letters, we also get the first glimpse of what they thought was endgame for them. Augusta writes, quote, Oh, how hard it is for us to struggle against such odds and disadvantages, my own sweetheart, when we love each other so much. God help us. I feel very sorry for you. And I pity you with all my heart, darling. And you know I would gladly help you if I could. But I'm helpless and powerless, bacha, darling. And I can only ask you to wait for me till I come to you, free and unfettered, dearest love of mine. End quote. So clearly they thought they had a future together without their respective spouses. Their relationship was developing at an astonishing pace. I mean, at this point, it has barely been a year since they first met. From Augusta's letter, we also come to know that she had become pregnant. Now, it is heavily implied that the child was Henry's. Henry had sent her abortion-inducing drugs to terminate the pregnancy, which she did. At this point, two things become clear. First, they are determined to be together. And second, Henry is quite the chemist. So the incident with her husband had spooked Augusta and things were very tense at home. So tense, in fact, that in the April of 1911, she declared to Henry that they had to stop writing to each other and cut ties. But Henry was undeterred. In fact, getting a little desperate at Augusta's decision, Henry writes to Augusta that they should take concrete measures to, quote, smooth the way for their future happiness, end quote. And this means kill off their respective spouses. When he came to meet Augusta in Meerut later, he had come prepared with a tonic that she was to give to Edward in measured doses every day. Now, this tonic was probably arsenic. As far as murder weapons go, this was a pragmatic choice, not that I'm making any suggestions. But arsenic is tasteless and odorless, and at the time it was unregulated and widely available in India. People did not have to record reasons why they were purchasing arsenic. Also, small doses of arsenic can make a person sick, but are unlikely to cause death. Over time, arsenic poisoning can be easily passed off as cholera or food poisoning, which were common problems among Europeans living in the hot and humid Indian weather. So, in fact, for the first couple of months that Edward is given arsenic, he's actually fine. He does suffer from loose motions and weakness now and then, but he would recover every time. In fact, Augusta becomes very impatient. She writes to Henry, quote, The powders are going on being administered steadily, darling, but there is little or no difference, except that my hubby feels the heat very much and complains of being tired. But that's an old story. And then later, she says, How many hundreds of years will they take? I must say I don't approve of your powders at all, darling. End quote. So during this entire time, Henry had also been poisoning his wife, Louisa. But Louisa would throw up every time and that's the extent of her sickness. She would never become fatally ill. In fact, Henry would even go on to complain to a confidant that Louisa was, quote, poison proof, end quote. And yes, Henry had a confidant. In fact, Henry's attempts on Louisa's lives were not a secret at all. 
A man named Bibu, who worked as domestic help for the Fulhams, was coerced by Henry to slip in arsenic in his wife's food. Henry's confidant that I mentioned earlier was a man named Alec Joseph, who, if you can believe it, used to compose Henry's letters to Augusta. Yes, Henry, it turns out, wasn't the most gifted when it came to letter writing, so he had a friend do it for him. Oh my god, this has to be the most third-rate love story I've ever read in my entire life. Anyway, moving on. If you think that having confidence is the stupidest part of plotting a murder, get this, Augusta was getting her arsenic from Henry in the fucking mail. Yeah, he was literally sending her poison by post. <sighs> anyway, Henry experimented with his poisonous concoctions. A couple of times he sent her powders that tasted weird so they were easily detectable. When Augusta added one such powder to her husband's tea, he returned it saying that it had a medicinal taste. And this incident also raised alarm with Edward. He started to vaguely connect the dots. And he realized that his recent bouts of ill health may have something to do with his wife. And Augusta realizes this because she writes to Henry that she thinks that Edward is getting suspicious. We don't know whether Edward ever confronted his wife about this. But most probably he did not. Also, remember the domestic help who Henry tried to recruit to poison his wife? He promptly went and told Louisa and Henry's sons about the attempt on her life. He even gave them the powder that Henry had given him to add to Louisa's food. So even Louisa knew that her life was in danger. And we know this because she wrote a memo, like a journal entry, which was recovered after her death from her room. In the memo, she details all of her husband's abusive behavior, his multiple affairs, and even his attempts to kill her. This is a heartbreaking piece of document, but it's very insightful about the pitiable state of her marriage and just how deeply unhappy she was. Over the course of next few months, Edward remained ill with cholera-like symptoms. He had to be hospitalized twice. He had to take eight months leave from his job and later he got so sick that he had to retire. After his retirement, there was talk of leaving Meerut and shifting to the hills in Missouri or Bangalore or even migrating to England where the climate would be better, all of which threatened to throw a wrench in Augusta's plans to end up with Henry. If he had acted on any of these plans, he may have lived. Who knows? His children would not have been orphaned, probably. I mean, Augusta would have been far away from Henry. Probably their love would have died down. But he didn't. He made the most baffling decision of moving to Agra of all places. This is unbelievable to me. I mean, Edward Fulham by this time knew of his wife's affair. He had heard far too much gossip. He had seen them together. He also suspected that his wife was trying to poison him and Henry was helping her. So after all this, why would he move to a city where his wife's lover and partner in crime lived is beyond comprehension. One explanation could be that he had a lot of belief in Henry's medical capacities, so maybe he thought that Henry would be able to cure him. The mental image of Henry saving his wife and infant daughter's life from two years ago was still fresh in his mind. They landed in Agra in October. By this time, Edward Fulham was extremely ill. He had high-grade fever and doctors seemed to think that he was suffering from a heat stroke. 
It was believed at trial that Clark had induced this fever with the help of a mixture of cocaine and atropine. On 10th October 1911, after a meal that Augusta gave him, Edward vomited violently. Safe to assume that she had poisoned this meal as well. He went to his room to rest, but after a while, called out for help. He was in a lot of pain and agony. Clark, who at this point had been taking care of Edward this entire time, taking care in quotes, went into his room. And the rest of the story comes from Kathleen's testimony in court. Kathleen was the oldest Fulham kid and at the time of her father's death, she was 10. So she says that Clark filled a syringe and administered it to her father, who died instantly. All this time, her mother stayed out of the room and Kathleen observed just how indifferent her mother remained throughout the entire ordeal. About the syringe incident, Henry Clark would later almost boast at his trial that he had simply put Edward out of his misery. And given how much pain Edward was in, I hate to say it, but Henry was probably right. I mean, maybe it may have been his only act of mercy. Now, Edward's death did not raise any suspicions in Agra. It was known that he had been chronically ill for a long time. He had been diagnosed with a heat stroke. His doctors did not suspect any foul play. No one faced any consequences. And for the next few months, Augusta basically lived as Clark's mistress in Agra. One obstacle in their relationship had already been removed. And the next one, Louisa, was proving to be a tough nut to crack. After Bibu confessed to her about the arsenic, Henry had employed another man named Buddhu to do it, who proved to be way more pliable. But Louisa would fall ill and recover. It seemed like she would never die. The lovers were getting impatient. So Augusta and Henry cracked another plan. They hired Buddhu and uh, three or four of his friends to kill Louisa. And this takes us back to the night of 17th November 1912, where we started this episode. Clark, who had become completely brazen about his relationship with Augusta by this time, told his family that he would be out having dinner with her till late in the evening and that they should not wait up. He even arranged to meet a friend to establish his alibi. At night, Buddhu and his gang barged into their home armed with a sword. The sword had come from Clark. It was a family heirloom. The family dog of the Clarks, who had not barked, was in fact restrained and muzzled by Henry himself in a shed on their property. Buddhu and his gang killed Louisa and escaped. So when Henry was arrested, it was common knowledge that Augusta was his mistress. The police obtained a search warrant for her house. While questioning her, they didn't find anything useful on the Louisa Clark murder, but, and here's where all the skeletons come out, as the police superintendent was leaving, his foot struck a box under her bed. As soon as Augusta was questioned about it, she collapsed in a heap on a chair. The box had all the letters that she had written to Clark during their relationship. In a final act of stupidity, she had recorded all their murder attempts in writing for everyone to see. Both Augusta and Henry were convicted for both murders and sentenced to death. Henry was hanged, but it was found that Augusta was pregnant with Henry's baby, so she was spared the news and instead she was sent to Nani prison in Allahabad to do hard labour. She delivered her baby in prison, who was later adopted. And Augusta Clark, unfortunately, would not survive prison. She died of heat stroke of all things. Karma, am I right? 
So this was an utterly stupid poorly planned crime no doubt Henry and Augusta were not criminal masterminds but nevertheless they were narcissistic selfish and diabolical all they had to do was get divorced that's it but no they chose to orphan their children and kill two perfectly good innocent people for their little dalians anyway that was the story of the agra double murders that's it for today We will be back next week with the next installment in our Charles Sobrad series. Till then, bye.